0: Right, I want to welcome everybody today we're going to be in Hosea chapter 6 and 7 so we're moving on along through there and, and uh, I want to our, thank our children's teachers they did a great job today and uh, they always do a great job with our kids and, and um, I've, I've watched that over many years here as, as we've had people faithfully work and serve in our children's ministry and it's been a great thing. Um, and, and also our youth stuff a couple of weeks ago, our Youth Sunday, that was a great day. Um, Roy and Amy have done a great job working with our young people and preparing them to lead in worship and, and doing other things as well with our youth group. So we're going to be in Hosea 6 and 7, and as we come into that... Um, the, the first three verses in the, um, God invites us to be reconciled to Him. As, as we begin coming in in Hosea 6 1 through 3, these verses, they're an invitation from Yahweh for the people to return to Him, to come back into a relationship with Him. He's a reconciling God. God is a God who is reconciling or working to fix our broken relationship. And whenever any relationship is broken, It requires forgiveness in order for it to be restored. For instance, if someone offends you, you have to forgive them in order for that relationship to be restored. And they also have to make a response towards you in that. And and this is what God is doing here. He's extending forgiveness to the people. He is offering that to them. He's punished them for the rebellion in verse 1. And now he's extending grace to them and inviting them back into covenant with Him. In Hosea 6, 1-3, Hosea writes, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up, that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. He is going out as sure as the dawn he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So as Hosea comes in, he's saying in light of everything up to this point um, in Hosea, what, what we have here is this amazing display of God's grace and mercy towards the people. He's not giving up on, um, on them, and Hosea is calling them to respond to God's grace He says, you know, we need to return to the Lord. He has torn us that he may heal us. He struck us down and he will bind us up. He's saying God has reached out to us. He has done everything he can to bring us back to him. He's allowed calamity to fall upon us. He's allowed our enemies to come in. He has um, done everything and he's doing this to display his grace, to bring us back into relationship with him, to reconcile the relationship that we have in him. And, and God's not giving up on them and, and he's calling them back into this relationship with him. This is the cry of the prophets. If you come in in the Old Testament, the prophets, they, they have a theme and, and each of them um, hit on different things. But, but the overarching thing would be God saying, return to me. Return to me and I will return to you. That's the the heart of the message. In Isaiah 55, 3, Isaiah writes, incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So Isaiah, he's saying the same thing in, in different words. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Jesus put it this way coming into the New Testament. He said, come to me, all you who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and gentle of heart, for my burden is... <clears throat> easy and my load is light. So he comes in and and he calls the people into this. Or in John chapter 7 uh, verse 37, Jesus on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So you have this theme in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the prophets, you have in the New Testament, Jesus calling us to him. He's inviting us to come to him. He says, if you are thirsty, if you are looking for something to water your soul, to meet that deep need within you, come to me and drink, drink freely. Um, In Luke 6, 46 through 49, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building up a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. The call that, that the prophets were making, the call that Jesus made was to come to him to return to God and he will raise us up. He will raise us up and restore us just like Jesus. He says here in verse 2, he says, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. He will raise us up so that we can live our lives out in a reconciled life relationship with him. Just like Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, he will raise us from our brokenness and our sin to a new life in Christ it's a promise that sure and Jesus comes to us and he invites us to be reconciled to him and to be in a relationship with him just as God invited the people of Israel to be reconciled to him, to be made right with him, to walk with him. Interesting in verse two here, this um, on the third day, he will raise us up You say, who's he talking about? Well, he's one, he's talking about Ephraim, but he's also speaking here about Christ it's it's something that we will see fulfilled in the new testament we see in first corinthians fifteen three and 4 paul alludes to it he said for i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures so Paul is writing back he's talking about the scriptures and this is the most likely the reference he's speaking of here is in Hosea chapter 6 verse 2 that that we see that and and we're seeing that God is inviting us into this relationship with him he just as he invited the people of Israel, to come and to know him. He invites us today. He pursues us and invites us to know him. And then in verses 4 through 11, we see that sincere faith is a visible display. It it moves on that when our faith is real, people can see it. It's a a display for the world to see. It affects our actions. It affects the way we live. It does something within us. God's question, he begins in verse 4. He says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. He said, look, your, your love is just a fleeting thing. Your response to me is something that kind of pops in and pops out. It fades in and fades out. I'm sometimes there... in in your mind and sometimes in your mind i'm not sometimes i matter to you sometimes i don't he is just saying that that i'm just one thing among many to you he says what am i going to do with you i mean what am i going to do with you i mean it's that question you don't want your mama asking you you know have you ever had your mind i don't know what i'm going to do with you boys what am I going to do with you, boy? I, I heard that so many times growing up because I deserved it, because any, any lady who raises three boys should be given a medal for doing it, but I mean, it, it is, you know, you, you tear things up, you destroy things, you do all manner of crazy stuff, and, and ultimately just, they just kind of sit there and go, I don't even know, I don't even know what to do with this. I mean, what am I, and this is where God is. This is his exasperation. This is exasperation with Israel saying, I don't even, I I, I mean, what are you thinking? Where did you come up with this? How did you even get to this point? This is exasperation on the point of God. And You think, well, God can't be exasperated because God sure he can. He can just say, you know, how much more can you do? How much further can you go? I am calling you into covenant with me. And, and this is something that's, that's very serious. It's the question you don't want your mama to ask you. You definitely don't want God asking you. Because that's even worse. Way, way, way worse. And, and he's saying this is serious. He's expressing his frustration with them. And then he's going to lay out his reasoning and the requirements of this covenant so as as we look at this Hosea's goal is not to make them better people his goal is not to make them sin less that's not the goal that is not the point that's not where he's going with it that's not what it means to follow Jesus doesn't mean that I learn to control my sin or that I learn to control my behavior, or any of those things. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not behavior modification. It's changing a desire inside of us. It is changing us in a way that moves us to God. His goal was a fundamental heart change that would result in the, the word that, that's translated out there as hesed. Hesed, it's a covenant love. He says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is what he's saying in here. So he comes in in verse 5. He says, Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood, as robbers lay in wait for a man, so the priests band together, they murder on the way to Shechem, they commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing, Ephraim's whoredom is there, Israel is defiled, for you, O Israel, a harvest is appointed. Now, you come in there and, and you look there 's a lot of stuff going on here, but but the thing to key in here is this covenant love, the steadfast love, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings he 's saying, as we come in and look the uh, One way, uh, when we did the Ruth series, the commentator on Ruth that, that I'd studied a lot, he said, hesed is one of those Hebrew words whose meaning cannot be captured in one English word. This is a strong relational term that wraps up in itself an entire cluster of concepts, all the positive attributes of God love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. In short, that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. It means that I am loving even though it may cost me something. I'm not worrying about what it's going to cost me. I am expressing kindness towards someone regardless of that. I am acting in a way that is expressing all of these things and I'm not thinking what will it bring to me or what will it give to me or what will it cost me I'm doing it out of love out of covenant love is is what we see and and you might see that Ruth and Boaz they express this towards one another when you see this you see Ruth loving a mother-in-law who can do nothing for her who will actually cost her in the long haul, if things don't go well. You are looking at Boaz, who loves someone, who shows grace and mercy to someone, when he has nothing to gain from it. And so, as, as we come in there, this is what Hosea is saying. He's, he's saying, God's saying, I desire steadfast love. I desire hesed, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, or intimacy with me, rather than burnt, Offerings. It's not just an Old Testament thing. It's what God has called us to from the very beginning. Jesus. Put it this way in Matthew 9, 10 through 13, it says that as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The scribes and the Pharisees, they said, look man, this looks bad. This looks really bad. You can't hang out with these people if you want to be a religious leader. You can't be around this type of person. You can't be stained by them. And Jesus said, what's wrong with you? This is why I came. I came for those who need healing. Not for those who think they're fine. I came for those who are in need of redemption and when the disciples were eating grain on the sabbath he said the same thing in matthew 12 7 and he said and if you had known what this means i desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless jesus said you wouldn't have done this these men were eating grain on the sabbath they yeah they were hungry they needed food. Hosea is clearly stating the covenant requirement, and Jesus refers to it, and it's fundamental for following him because sincere faith is a visible display. It's something for the world to see. It's something that solid teaching emphasizes, and it's evidenced in the church. So as we come in here, he gives three different things coming in, and, and Hosea, it's amazing. The more I read it, I mean, the more amazed I become at it and, and just how tight he writes and how he brings things out over and over and over again. And he comes back and, you know, you start with three children. Last week we talked about three cities this week and, and he had it in a positive light this week. He's got three cities in a negative light. He's got Gilead, Shechem, and Adam, a, a really small city. But, but as you come in, as you would look, he said Gilead is, is a place of bloodshed and and he comes in and you go back to Gilead Gilead is where Jacob had fled from Laban and he takes his wives um Rachel and Leah and all the children and all the the uh flocks and everything else. And Laban, this is where he catches up with him. This is the same place where Jacob tries to figure out what am I going to do with my brother Esau. He was out for my blood when I left. Now it's, I think, 21 years later. I'm coming in. What's going to happen? And he splits the family up and he sends, you know, his, his least favorite wife first. And he takes his favorite wife to go last with him. Yet yeah, it's messed up it's just wrong and messed up the whole situation is messed up and and it's in there so we can see just how messed up people can get it's where Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord there and and it's Jacob the deceiver that is the very worst of his character being shown and it was shown right there in Gilead Shechem was where the people would go up to offer their offerings and, and to make them there and and god is saying when the people come to offer their offerings you're like murderers waiting on the way to rob and take from them shechem is the place where the sons of of uh jacob coming back when they when they're coming in where they come in and they slaughtered all the men there and jacob said you've made me a stench to uh, joseph said you Jacob said, You've made me a stench to the people and coming in there. So it's, you've, you've got these things going on. So we had the patriarchs at their best. Now we've got the patriarchs at their worst. And it's coming in and saying that, that faith is something that's to be. On display. Uh, An illustration of this would be a guy named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was in the uh, 18th century, in the 1700s, and and he was in parliament in Britain, and, and he served there for many years. And his driving desire as he served his God in government was that he would end the slave trade, that the slave trade would be outlawed. In Europe, it was an interesting thing because his convictions... His faith propelled him to lead the abolitionist campaign. And Christianity in England was at a very low point. It wasn't high. Um, It it was at a very, very deep valley. The church attendance was sparse. Preaching was poor. Um, After surveying the best preachers in London, one of his contemporaries, one of Wilberforce's contemporaries, noted not one of the sermons contained more Christianity than the writings of Cicero. In other words, they'd left the Word of God. They were just talking about social issues and the the things of the day and how to feel good, how to get healthy, wealthy, and prosperous and all kinds of stupid lies. They had gone totally inside. And and he said, um, Wilberforce, his, his passionate faith was seen as religious fanaticism and he said if to be feelingly alive to the sufferings of my fellow creatures is to be a fanatic i am one of the most incurable fanatics ever permitted to be at large and and if you, you want to know there's a movie called amazing grace and um it uh it it chronicles his life and what he did and before he died they actually did vote to abolish slavery in Europe so it it was an amazing thing but but coming in why because Jesus transforms us when we meet him when we're sincere in our faith sincere in our convictions he changes us we're no longer on the hunt For the vulnerable, for what we can get out of things, but instead we're looking to show mercy and steadfast love, to have the knowledge of God, and he puts that on display for the world to see. In Second Corinthians two fourteen, Paul put it this way, he said, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through and and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere says that that as we go we're a spectacle for the world to see and then in verses uh in the very last part of verse 11 the, the last phrase of it um, through the end of chapter 7 we see that um, sincere faith requires resolve not only does sincere faith Uh, become a visible display for the world to see. It requires resolve. It requires us stepping in and leaning in to it because healing and restoration come after sin is revealed. When sin is revealed to us then we can move to healing and restoration then we can move into a right relationship with God it's after we're exposed it's after everything in our lives is made bare not only before God because he knows all things but it's laid bare to us when we see ourselves as we are when we see our separation when we see our brokenness before God then we can repent that's called re- conviction It's also called conviction. In the very last phrase there, he says, when I restore the fortunes of my people. Think about this. In the midst of everything, Hosea. Look, when you read Hosea, it's doom and gloom. On on a surface reading of it, it's just doom and gloom. It's everything that's going to happen. Bang, 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 bang. But then when you read it a little more, And you read it again and again and again. You start to see things popping up. And you see everything that these people have done against God. And then God says, when I restore you, when I restore the fortunes of my people, God is saying, you know what? I'm still on the hunt. I'm still in it. I'm still going to redeem my people. I'm still offering my grace and mercy to people. And and he comes in, he says in 611, through 7 2, he says, When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. God says, I see it. I know it. It's there. They think it's not but I have a plan and I have a purpose. So Hosea, he comes in and he uses, just like he had three cities, he has three metaphors that he uses here. And and these three metaphors are all about not doing what is required as a follower of God. They're all about what didn't happen. And um, he begins with a baker, and and he goes in here and and he says, he says, they are all... They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approached their intrigue all night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. So in up into verse 7, he uses the, the picture of a baker. He's speaking about A baker in here and he's saying a baker is is like a leader he's comparing them to their leaders these are their religious leaders these are the people who are supposed to be caring for them who are supposed to be nurturing them who are supposed to be leading them in the right way and he's comparing them to a baker who forgets to take care of the oven and he ends up devoured by his enemies he um he should be staying up at night And maintaining the fire in there, if the guy's the baker, especially he's the baker, say inside the palace and the king's palace, you would stay up and you would keep your fire going so that you could have the ovens prepared in the morning when you need to cook the bread, when you need to bake the bread. And and you would be in there doing things that um, should be done, but instead the oven ends up. He ends up being devoured by his enemies. He said, instead of the fire going out, this fire rages hotter and hotter and hotter until it just consumes everything he's been spending his energy it says on the day of our king and princes. he became sick with the heat of wine in other words he came so drunk that he was sick he was no longer able to do what he was supposed to do and he's been spending his energy on drink instead of caring for the people so you see that the second metaphor he uses is um is like a cake unturned a cake unturned. It's like, a cake unturned? I, have you ever had a cake turned? I mean, of course you have. A pancake. He's frying the bread, and it's a pancake. I thought, for the life of me, I thought, a cake unturned. You know? And and, um, and, and you come in, and you look at this, and he says, it's like a cake unturned. You want your cake flipped. Their leaders, they're so captivated by their culture that they're no longer able to discern their brokenness. He said, like a cake unturned that's not turned. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon it and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. So he he talks and he uses this metaphor of this cake and, and he's saying that they're not able to discern their brokenness. And, and as we come in and, and you look, he's saying, look, it takes a lot of work to care for my people. You've got to watch over that. And it takes a lot of it in our own lives, in our own household, to spiritually maintain our strength and our vitality and, and our walk with God and what He wants to do in us so that He can put us on display for the world to see and, and to draw a world that's lost and apart from Him to Him. It's, it's like if, if you come in and you you think about everything that it takes and these, these two metaphors of the cake and and of the baker, and the oven, and and you come in there, and you look at it, it's like, you know, everybody is, is sad in our community, because the moose is loose closed, and you know why they closed? Do you know how much work it is to run a bakery? You've got to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning. You've got to make sure that all the doughs out there are proofing and ready to go. Those donuts don't just miraculously appear at 6 a.m. unless they were made the day before if you didn't get up in the middle of the night. And you've got to be there at night, and you've got to get that stuff out, and you've got to do it all. And, and it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of effort, and you've got to do it day in and day out, and you got to come in and and make those things happen. And this this is what Hosea is saying. God is speaking to the people and He's saying, look, your life with me, our covenant together, is something that requires close attention. It's of the greatest importance. It's of the greatest necessity. And you have to do that. We have to do that. It's something that requires our attention. It's going back to the metaphor of marriage of Hosea and Gomer. It's saying that that marriage is something that's primary and it requires attention. It requires that two people invest in one another. It requires that they invest in growing closer to one another. It requires that they invest in growing closer to God together. It it requires that as they spend their lives together, that they walk together in unity and oneness. Instead, he said, their bread... Their bread, it's like a cake unturned, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him. And we think about gray hairs are sprinkled upon him. You know, it's like dropping hairs. No, it's not gray hair in this sense, and it's not saying gray hair is a bad thing. Gray hair was a wonderful thing in their culture. Look, the older you get, the better it gets. In ancient Near Eastern culture, it it was something that was um, people revered. They thought very highly of The gray head. He's not talking about gray hair, though. He's talking about mold. He's talking about when your bread gets hairy. The stringy little gray hairs that grow on the bread. You know, the gross stuff. He's saying you're not watching it. You're not caring for it. And and your bread's getting moldy. It's coming in. You're not caring for the oven. You're not flipping the cake. You're not taking care of what you got on the shelf. It's just going down. And then he goes on and he says... That um, from there he says, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. And they gash themselves, they rebel They. Rebel against me, although I trained and strengthened their arms; yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence on their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. He goes on. He say they're like a homing pigeon, like a like a a silly dove. It's probably a homing pigeon. He's talking about, and rather than return home to God, where. Israel should go as their home base. They're going to Assyria and Egypt. And they don't even know who they are. They don't know to return to God. They blame God for their problems and they put Him alongside the cares of the day. Their knowledge of God is powerless because it's superficial. It's surface. They just can flip out a little verse here and a little thing there and and give quick thoughtless answers to everything in life and they've not stopped to go into the depth and the meaning of it and what god really wants to do within and inside of us because their knowledge of god is superficial it's superficial it's surface surface at best. It's a shell that's rotten on the inside, and the impending collapse of the nation is going to make it evident. You see, they have this look on the outside that everything is together, but on the inside, it's not happening. It's not happening. And and this is what Hosea is saying, and and he says, they're like a treacherous bow. And and in their day, that would be like saying that you're a Your ships and your planes don't work. They look good. They're parked out on the tarmac. They're in the harbor, and everything looks great. But when you get up close, it's not. Several years, a bunch of us went over to Russia on a mission trip, and we landed over there. Now, look, I grew up in the Cold War, okay? I'm I'm like a Cold Cold War baby you know, 1961 version. So, you know, we come in, and, and back then, you know, it's always, you know, oh my gosh, you know, it's going to be, the big one's going to get dropped, and what's going to happen, and you're worried about it, you go, we land in eastern Russia, and we come down the runway, look, there's grass growing between cracks, this, this high in the cracks, they don't even have gas for the airplanes, they're parked, and they haven't flown in who knows when. And I'm kind of looking out the window in this plane of third world airlines, shaking, and, and wondering, what in the world was I afraid of? What in the world was it? I mean, it was just kind of weird. You know, you go over there and you think, this this was the superpower? They don't even have fuel. I mean, what's going on here? And And it's a shell. And this is what and I'm not saying that we're not a shell either because I think we are spiritually our nation is a shell but um, but the bottom line is this is what Hosea is saying he's saying look this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt they're like a treacherous bow you pull it back and it breaks you go to grab the string and it's not, not going to hold the arrow. You can't do anything with it. And he says this is what it has become there. And as we come in and we look, what, what God is calling us to and, and what we see is that salvation, salvation requires this faithful, monogamous relationship with Jesus. It's a relationship that supersedes every other thing in your life. It's more important than your relationship with your spouse. You say, whoa, nothing can be, I mean, I've got to have my spouse. No, if you put Jesus below your spouse, you're in danger. God has to be at the top of everything in our lives. When we love him above everything else, then we love our spouse beyond what we're capable of. We love our spouse more than anything that we could ever imagine because we have a love for God that supersedes everything else. We love God more than we love our children because when we love God more than we love our children, our children understand the need and necessity to love God, and they're drawn to Him through that, and they see it. Even if they turn from Him, they understand that there was something in our lives that was way different. There's something that kept mom and dad on an even keel when when we didn't know how and they come in and they go that so we have this thing that that orders the family and it orders the family by ordering us spiritually by understanding that we have one father in heaven and that we have one faithful groom in heaven, Jesus, and we are the bride of the groom, the church, and, and he is primary in all things. It's a relationship that supersedes all other relationships. Jesus put it this way in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not only is that for salvation, it's for having a right relationship as well. We don't come to Jesus through stuff. We don't come to Jesus through rituals or anything else, we come to Jesus through a right heart, through mercy and a knowledge of God as we go back. Jesus, God said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, he's saying, I want everything in this relationship. He's going back, and you can look back, and you can see what, what happens with Hosea and Gomer. Gomer leaves leaves Hosea. She wanders off, and the picture is is that God is buying her back when Hosea goes and buys her back in her shame and her brokenness and everything is gone and falling apart. That's the picture of God reaching out to us in the depths of our sin and our brokenness from him in our rebellion against him. And he is lifting us up and he's saying that I want this relationship to be what I intended for it to be with me at the first with me primary, above all else. You see, what the problem is for us is we get distracted by everyday life and we go all in on the wrong things. We get distracted. We have lots of distractions. As a matter of fact, the the further we advance, the, the wealthier we get, the better we get at everything that we do. What it does is it distracts us in many, many, many ways. It is all so easy to become distracted. For instance, that camera control quit working. Hello on the live stream. And, and it was the thing that moved stuff. And, and and it made it easy for the people working. They could punch a button and it would s- s- go to wherever it was set to go. And and it just quit. I mean, the devil got it. And and I spent, I mean, I spent hours, Greg spent hours and and I would wake up, and sometimes I would think about it. And that's sick. And, and you can just go down and down and down. And, and, and during the first service, they clicked on the slide, and, and like some weird cathedral sound started happening. And, and Greg's like, you got to fix that. It's just, I don't know what happened. And it is. And, and, and we could go forever on all this stupid stuff. Or we could wait till the person God has put in this, in this church to fix it steps up and does it, right? Everybody's wanting to. Um, no, but it, you know there are things like that. There are things like entertainment. I've had grown men, grown men, flat out tell me I, I can't come to church because I watch football on Sundays. Look, that's sad. I mean, it's just sad. Because what it says is, I would rather worship 22 guys that I want to be on the field, or I want to relive high school through these guys on the field, rather than worship the God who loves me. With other people on the journey. And being in a community with them, that sounds harsh. But it's true, it's just true. And and you could insert fishing, hunting, hiking, shopping. Um, you could insert all kinds of stuff in there. Sports. You, you could it's really easy. We get caught up in the everyday activities that go on in the things, and we go chase those activities, and we invest our time, we invest our energy, we invest everything that we have, we invest in, in keeping up with the entertainment scene and, and, and keeping up with all the different things that are happening in the world. And what happens is is we have a, a plethora of knowledge and a teacup of Jesus. And, and it affects us. And this is what happened to these people in Hosea. And this is what God's saying He's saying, Yeah, I'll redeem you from it. I'll redeem you. I'll restore you. I'll do this. But, but the thing that, that we come in and we look, we need to understand that following Jesus takes resolve. And we don't want. To hear, come let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. And this is how much God loves us. This is how much he loves his people. He doesn't just turn his back on us. He doesn't just turn his back on us and say, look, this is a bunch of sinful idiots, and I'm done. I've had it. No, he pursues us, and he just cranks up the heat. It's like the oven that goes rampant. It's like the cake that's unturned. It's like the hairy mold on your bread. He's saying, I'm going to do something to get your attention. I'm going to draw you back. And he says, so that I can revive you and raise you up so I can bring you back because Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way to the Father. I am the one that we, he says that he is the one that we will come to and following Jesus takes resolve. It's easy to forget what matters in the middle of life. Look, it really is. I understand that. It's easy to get caught up. You get caught up in your career. You get caught up in in raising your kids. You get caught up in their sports. You get caught up in paying the bills. You get caught up in fixing the house. You get caught up in, in all of the different things, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. As a matter of fact, there's everything good with it all because they're all things that God has provided. But when we allow it to captivate us, and hold our hearts, and it moves us away from Jesus, then it destroys us, and we become a shell. And through this little book of Hosea, God is reminding us that he has great plans and desires for us. He has pursued us relentlessly. He has loved us with a love that is amazing. He has raised us up from death to life. He has called us to live lives that are a display for the world to see. And he promises that he will help us through every single day as we walk with him he promises to be with us to give us a strength but it requires that we put him first in all things that we start that we start off asking for his direction each day that we start putting him in first and then following and ordering our lives around that and then from there it becomes an amazing thing this is what he says when i restore when I restore, and he wants to restore us every single day. I don't know about you, but I need to be restored every single day. Every single day. I need the power of Jesus in my life to live it the way that he called me and created me to do it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, praising you for the amazing love grace and mercy that you've shown to us in Christ Jesus on the cross. Father, we thank you for the pictures that you give us in your word of how you dealt with your people throughout the ages of your relentless pursuit of your love and of your mercy. Father, we pray that as your people we'd be drawn to you, that we would love you more than anything else. Father, that we would desire you and Lord, that our relationship with you wouldn't be one that's made up by rules and rituals but it'd be made up by love in a desire to please you to know you more and to grow in our faith and we pray this in jesus name amen as we wind it down faith in christ is a simple thing it comes down from understanding that jesus is god in the flesh who came and died to redeem us from our sin that we don't get good enough for god that god came and he made it possible for us to know him you can do that today you can do that where you are it's simple it's you just acknowledge you know what god i've blown it i i know i know what's wrong in my life and i know that it's sin against you and you alone and i'm asking for your forgiveness i'm turning to you trusting in jesus who died on the cross for me who came alive three days later from the grave and conquered sin and death and he offers me life. You can do that. You can pray to him today and ask him that. You can step down here. I'll pray with you. Or you can talk to me afterwards or someone else here in the church. But don't leave here today without making that step. And for the rest of us who have, those those of us in the room who have followed Jesus, he's crying out to us today saying, dig in, dig in, drink deep, and move with me, and I will make your life something that is amazing for the world to see, something way better than health, wealth, and prosperity, something way better than the things of this earth. It's something that people will look at and go, you know what? I don't know what it is, but I want it. I can't see it, but I want it. And that's what he wants to do in each of us. Would you stand as Greg leads us?